Hi, y'all. I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. I'm an associate professor of land use planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. Okay, so we are here today with Casey McKenney. She is a professor at Portland State University and as part of the Portland State University's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative's Faculty Fellows Program and has been doing uh, some amazing work to bring the students' experiences at PSU with homelessness and housing insecurity to the foreground to help us better understand what their experiences have been like and how we can best support them. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. All right. So Casey, why don't you just tell us a little about yourself? What do you study? What do you do? Well, first, I, as you said, I'm in the Toulon School of Urban Studies and Planning, but I'm also faculty, affiliated faculty in comic studies. I am a geographer by training, and I'm also a visual artist who works in comics. I got a certificate in comic studies from the amazing Independent Publishing Resource Center here in Portland. So I do those two things together, and I started uh, my research in the past studying um, agricultural technologies and rural labor migration issues, um, child labor. So I've been thinking about youth for a long time, and it started as you know the years have gone on as an instructor, as a teacher. I've been paying more and more attention to the experiences of my students, my college age students. Um, so those are some kind of key pieces. So what got you interested and engaged in homelessness? I understand you're on the board, or we're on the board of Sisters of the Road one of our most well-known homeless service providers here in the Portland area. That's right. I got to Portland in uh, 2015 and was here as a housed person, in fact, bought a house and was thinking a lot about the issue of homelessness then and thinking about what my role could be as somebody who has been a community organizer in the past and also, you know, sort of a scholar activist and thinking about what it would mean for me to be a housed person in the city. And I got involved with Sisters of the Road I think that year, maybe 2016, as a volunteer, and then eventually ended up on the board and was the secretary for a few years and then was the board chair for a year before transitioning off the board in uh, 2021, I think. Um, And I spent that time learning about homelessness in the city from people experiencing it. And the thing that I kept hearing again and again in the relationships that I was building was the need for uh, humanization and dignity and respect and visibility And that was something that really stuck with me is the idea of dignity. And I brought that into my teaching and began to hear stories from my students about what it feels like to not be seen, the shame that can come from the kinds of stereotypes and generalizations that we use uh, to talk about people who are experiencing homelessness. And it just got me excited and interested. And then, of course, coming to PSU in 2019 and hearing about ATRAC and wanting to be a part of that um, and being really inspired by your work and the other work that's happening there in the thread of changing the narrative, which makes so much sense to me as somebody who really wants to change how we talk and think and teach about homelessness. So for listeners, changing the narrative is one of our focal areas in the research center and was born out of this this question and concern around communications and the ways that people talk about and think about homelessness. 
and being able to really uplift what are the actual, who are the actual people experiencing homelessness and what are their experiences like? Uh, When we first started the center, one of the things that came up almost immediately from our community partners was the most important thing that PSU could actually do to address homelessness was not a research center. Rather, it was actually ensuring that our students, staff, and faculty were not having to receive housing services. And so we've been trying to lift up projects that can help emphasize and, and help the institution as well as funders for the institution understand what does homelessness actually look like in higher ed? Um, a lot of people have stereotypes that come from you know, the, the student portfolio of the upper middle class student or the, the middle class student from 1970 being able to afford college from like that summer of uh, full-time minimum wage work. And um, that's not the reality anymore for the cost of college, but also not the reality of who goes to college. And so really understanding that our students um, experiencing homelessness uh, really do need a lot of support. Um, For me coming to Portland State, I certainly knew students who were experiencing homelessness at other institutions, but not to the degree that I found here. The number of students who would be, you know, saying that they were finishing an assignment in the car they slept in or, you know, sleeping on a bench and then getting harassed by security was quite uh, alarming. So we were thrilled to see Casey's project both come in because it was encapsulating those questions and trying to uplift those experiences, but also really wanting to engage with students as co-researchers and co-producers of a research project. So tell us a little bit about like how this came to be and what was important as you developed the project. One of the things I've wanted to do for a long time, as I mentioned, with thinking about dignity and narratives is get work in front of a wide audience that is engaging and rich and beautiful. And that invites you into the stories of people with lived experience to better understand what they've been through. And you mentioned students experiencing homelessness currently, but I think too, one of the things I found immediately in the research was how experiences throughout the life course of homelessness had continued to impact people who are students now. Uh, so I wanted to I've, I wanted to get an art to use a creative approach to changing people's hearts and minds, honestly, to beginning to see and and be make visible the different kinds of stories that our um, our students experience. So I used qualitative interviews. Um, and the first thing that I did was get an amazing team of undergraduates together to support me as that's something that I am deeply believe in as creating opportunities, paid opportunities, training opportunities for our undergraduates who are amazing and de- deserve those early experiences and exposure to, to research. So we were doing qualitative research through interviews. And the fun thing I think about these interviews is that we knew that they would be turned into comics in a collaborative process. So rather than just doing an interview in which we asked about students' experiences and what it means to them to have been homeless or to currently be experiencing housing instability, we also asked them to help us visualize a comic, a story in comics about their experiences. So what part of their experience is something that they would want to share? How do we think about it visually? How might we support an audience being welcomed into their story through visual means? And that process of doing qualitative interviews repeated several times with the same 10 people, um, about three hours total with each of the 10 people, led us to creating this sort of, we called it a cover page that we would share with the artists and begin the process of helping them translate. And remember, this is qualitative research, so it was confidential. The artists didn't know who the students were. The students did know who the artists were because we went through an amazing process of pairing them. 
But the fun that thing that came of that is really the development of those relationships if they wanted. So a student could say, I would really like to meet the artist. I would really like to work with them directly. And we had those meetings uh, via Zoom. They could also say, I want to give my feedback in an anonymous or confidential way, but I will continue to give my feedback. So the, the comic that's created out of those interviews is preserving the confidentiality of the student if they so desire, while also being fully a collaboration between my research team, myself, the artist, and the student. And that to me is completely innovative. I've never heard of something like that happening before. And it did a number of things. It served a number of purposes. It created something that truly is authentic and beautiful and rich. It created something that feels deeply authentic to the stories of the people with lived experience. They feel valued and respected in the work. They feel seen in the work. Um, and the artists feel really proud of creating something that does feel authentic and good and respectful for the participant. So it's a really, it was a new experience for all of us, but something that I think can be used as a model for collaborative research with the arts and thinking about homelessness, but not just homelessness in projects to come. I have some more follow-up questions, but first for listeners, this is Marisa Zapata, and I'm here with Casey McKenney. We are both professors at Portland State University who are doing work on homelessness. Professor McKenney or Dr. McKenney, are we calling you Casey? I forgot to ask before we started. Has been doing a wonderful and amazing and powerful project with our students at Portland State University, researching their experiences with homelessness and then offering a visual way through comics to actually understand those experiences. So, okay, so I love what you're talking about in terms of process. I think that this is one of the few examples that I think is very tangible for what we like to say in public participation, co-production, right? So we we talk about co-producing policies. Researchers will talk about co-producing research, but you're talking about some really specific ways of having that happen. So just to make sure I understand the process, you hired undergraduates and graduate students as your research team. How many students were on that team? Just undergraduate students. I hired oh, just two. Okay. I originally in the in my funding proposal, I asked for one, but then I found money to hire two. So um, you had two people helping you out, and then you had ten students who wanted to tell their stories. That's right. And I think just to back up for a moment, we put out the call to students around campus and through a lot of different means, social media, emails, et cetera. And we got a huge response. Uh, fifty five students responded within uh, about ten days saying that they would like to participate. And some of them in their applications to participate or in their call, their response to the call said things like, even just seeing this project has started to make me feel like I can heal. Even just seeing that this is something that people are, that the institution is willing to fund, that researchers want to pay attention to is beginning to make me feel seen and to change my relationship to my experiences. So even just the call to say, would you like to participate in this was already making a difference for students. I will be honest, every time we talk about this project, I start to tear up and I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I think it just hits my buttons with our students and and what we talk about, right, the importance of visibility and being seen can in and of itself be such a powerful, powerful opportunity. But I guess it also means you're saying that there are potentially 45 other Portland State students out there who might be willing to tell their stories. Absolutely. I think there would have been more, too, if we had left the call open longer um, so that's some one of the reasons why I'm trying to do it again. One of several reasons why I'm trying yeah. to do the whole process again and invite ten more students. So we'll get we'll get um to that in a moment. So you selected the students, and then you said you found artists. What did that look like? It was really interesting. We actually started by looking for the artists. Um, 
it just made sense because we were still in the institutional review board process. So looking to get human subjects review to be able to do our research interviews. The timing worked out to where we could just ask for the artists who are doing work for hire um, and do that call first. We put out that call all over and it just went wild on social media. It was being tweeted. We heard from 75 artists around the country who wanted to participate in this process. They received a year-long membership to the IPRC, the Independent Publishing Resource Center, a partner in our research, and they received $500 for their work. And so we heard from 75 people and had a terribly difficult time deciding which 10, uh, but we were able to begin, and I know you're going to want to know about this, but to begin to prioritize the voices of people who artists who are disabled, artists who are from the LGBTQAI community, and artists who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So we are immediately thinking, how do we how do we invite 10 artists who want to participate in this really unique collaborative process, who have an ama- amazing range of creative works that will create a, a really beautiful curated series, and then who also maybe identify in some of these ways that we are prioritizing in this work. And certainly anyone who is has experienced homelessness was also prioritized in that process of selecting artists. And so we did that first, which was a really, I think, interesting way to begin a process of collaborative research, but it made us feel like we had our team ready and on board. And then from the the artists that existed, did the students then pick which artists or did you do that pairing? This was an incredibly successful process that it could could have not been somehow. But (laughs) I think that it it influenced us once we had already chosen the artist and then went to choose the students. It influenced us in a way that lended itself to beautiful partnerships between people who kind of got each other. And I think some of the ways that that happened is that some students, as we heard their stories, as we did the interviews with them, the three of us on the team said, it has to be that artist. We're thinking about the the style that they bring, the use of color, uh, the use of lines, the design of the page, and how a particular artist would be able to render that story. We also had some students who asked for a particular artist because they could see the list in relation to identity. There was certainly a student who there are several students who said, I would really love that person. I feel like they'll get me. And others who said, I really would love that artist because I really think their style resonates with my story and who I am. Uh, and it worked. And everyone was really excited by who they got paired with. It helped the students choosing that all of the artists are amazing and really incredible people who absolutely wanted to be a part of this process. Um, so the, the relationships that we built were pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, I love the fact that the, the students were saying whether they wanted to give feedback and they wanted that to be anonymous. Do you know if at this point any of the students are still in touch with the artists? They are. There's a couple. It's a it's a quite a range, but there is one pair who are certainly friends now. And we're and in fact, the three of us are going to go on a picnic in a couple of weeks. The participant, the artist and myself. That's sort of an outlier, but really incredible. Uh, and there's a couple of people who were participants who I hope to work with in the future you know, on a, on team, uh, there are certainly artists I've become friends with and there are people who are keeping in touch. And then there's also cases in which the, there's one case in which a, a participant said, I trust the artist. I really love their work. I'll give some feedback, but I don't need to have, you know, more of a role in it than that. And that person, she is very happy with the results. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. So can you talk at a high level, what are some of the takeaways from these stories? I mean, I know this is always the challenge, right? These are, you've, you've done such an amazing job at curating and visually representing and telling a very personalized story. But at the same time, are there things that you've seen across the stories, things that you could say that, 
hey, look, this is important for people to really understand about our students. Yeah, I think there certainly is that range and they are each unique. And also there is certainly the role of uh, systemic injustice throughout as a thread throughout. I think the um, some of the ways that they connect is how impactful homelessness and housing instability through the life course, as I mentioned before, this idea that somebody might have been homeless as a child or as a young person or housing in- unstable for you know time after time after time are stable now, but it still is a huge part of who they are and how they're experiencing education and how they're experiencing life in Portland. So I felt like that was a really important thing to recognize. Um, one student talked about how this story isn't over. They really wanted us to emphasize that it was not about resilience for them, that resilience was actually really um, had a negative tone for them. And they really wanted it to be clear that they did not have a happy ending, that their story does not have a happy ending. It doesn't have an ending because the experiences of homelessness and housing instability in their body have yet to be fully expressed. And that pain and the sort of ways that it's going to weigh on them in their lives, it's not even clear yet. So I think that that idea of what homelessness and housing instability experience at different points and at multiple points in their life, how that impacts a student or really anyone in their later life is really important. And I think it's worth noting that we talk to graduate students and undergraduate students and younger students and older students, um, non-traditional age We talk to people who have multiple degrees and people who are just starting their first degree, people who are veterans, people with a lot of different experiences, people with kids, people who are parents, people who have lived in cars, this whole kind of range. And coming back to your question of threads, certainly it's how I'm experiencing this in my body. What it took to get me to where I am today is a sort of important thread in all the stories. Who did it take? And it often took respect and dignity and visibility and mentorship and connections, relationships with people to help them get through their experiences. Some of the students talk about ancestors and they talk about ancestors in the sense of the people who came before them, who are their relations biologically, and the people who came before them, who supported them when they needed it to be able to be who they are and where they are today. So that's a thread that I I didn't necessarily expect, but it was about support in multiple ways, sort of both spiritual and family related, and also sort of practical people who stood by and made it possible. There's one story in which the participant wanted to tell not his own story, but the story of the people who had been lost, people who had lived unhoused alongside him as a youth in the 90s in Portland. And he really wanted to show how those people allowed him to get to where he is and how they experienced Portland and the city. And they were often unseen, uh, disrespected, discriminated against, you know, seen as these sort of wild characters, these street kids who weren't worth anything, who had no value. And they got him to where he is today. And they were beautiful people. And so his story is really about remembering them as his ancestors and the people who got him to where he is today. So I don't think that a normal kind of research you know, a survey would never get that kind of, uh, would never get to that kind of story. And oh, and I think that that last point is just so important when we, you know, one of the things in public participation processes, you'll hear people say is like, when we put a focus group together, we need to remind everyone to speak from the eye. And really understanding that that is a very culturally specific orientation to what it means to show up and share. And part of it's about pushing back from like, the white bro who is like, we all think. And it's like, no, we all don't really think. 
but also recognizing that there are religious and I mean, religious groups, racial and ethnic groups. And as you're talking about a culture of what it means to be homeless together, right? So if we think about that as a cultural experience and a cultural group that asks you to speak differently. And I certainly see this in a, in a slightly different way with people I work with who are the first to say, if you give me a hundred dollars, I'm giving $10 to 10 people and keeping none for myself. Right. So a very different orientation to what community even means and looks like. I have a few other things I want to follow up on. But first, this is Marisa Zapata and I'm here with Casey McKenney. We are two professors and I'm going to just say amazing professors at Portland State University. And we are here talking about Casey's research with our students here at Portland State University to tell these stories of their experiences with homelessness and housing insecurity. Uh, I wanted to just go back to what you have been saying about the importance of the life course of homelessness. I don't want listeners to think, oh, well, some of these students or maybe even all of these students weren't actively homeless. So as you said, there might be the implication that everything's fine, everything's good. But we know that youth who've experienced homelessness are significantly more likely to experience homelessness as an adult. And so it's actually one of the you know, survey indicators we look at as if you have been homeless as a youth, you are going to need more you know, for the clinical term intervention or supports to be able to avoid that later on in life. Uh, but I think you're also talking about the importance of really humanizing what supports mean, what an intervention means. And it is about that relationship with other human beings to help get you through and to move on to the next phase. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about these notions of resiliency. Resiliency is actually kind of a ugh word for me. I get tired of being told how resilient as a woman of color I am. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what, what came up for students when they were thinking about that terminology. You talk about it some, but I'm wondering if you could expand on it more. The first thing I wanted to go back to is just this idea of, of categorizing it you mentioned. And I, I think it's worth saying that a lot of the students who came to us said things like, you know, does this count? Does this experience of homelessness that I'm describing count? Is this housing instability? And so we, we, in some ways at the very beginning when deciding, you know, when, when the students applied or asked to participate, they were still wondering, does this, does this qualify? Do I qualify? And so there's a process of, of understanding what does homelessness and housing instability mean technically? What does it mean practically in people's lives that this research process, it's, it started the mechanisms working to, I think, change how some of these students ex- understand their own experience and how to, to sort of qualify it. So resiliency, I think this I'm, the person I mentioned before, the person I mentioned before said from the very beginning, I would like to be a part of this. And it's really important to me that you do not say that I have a happy ending. And I have a lot of people in my life talking about resilience. We talk a lot about youth and students as able to sort of withstand and this participant said, like, we need to look at the systemic injustices that put me where I am. We need to look at the lack of support services and the, the forms of discrimination and racism and uh, anti-Asian sentiment and you know, these different things that, are, that I'm being impacted by in my life that I'm having to deal with, which is very different from me being uh, the focus of you know, as somebody who has a particular amount of power and ability to rise above I'd like to focus instead on what it is that's bringing me down, what it is that's forcing me into these situations. And that that student really shaped, I think, how the whole research team was thinking about the rest of the research. Like hearing from that person made us think harder about how we ended each story, about where each story ended, because it reminded us 
that it can be really easy to sort of say, and then, you know, here's, here's how it all ends. I ended up and things were well, and that's not the case for any of the people we talked to. None of those people would say everything is fine now. Everything is great now. They would say people and supports helped me to get to where I am and I'm proud of where I am, but that wasn't easy and I shouldn't have had to go through that. And that's, I think the point that that's for me is the real difference with resiliency is I shouldn't have gone through, have had to go through that. And we need to look at those systems that are at play, those forms of injustice that are at play that forced me to have to get through this rather than how great I am as an individual and being able to have survived when others have not. It doesn't make me different from them. We need to think about what caused that. So that's, I think that's how I would put it. And it's certainly what it made my research team and I think about is be careful not to slide into what you call the sort of the ickiness of emphasis on resiliency, as opposed to what causes all of this, what has led to who experiences homelessness and why and how. Yeah. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, growing up in a, a Chicano community, what like it means to to sit in the struggle right? Or to, to sit in, you know, people will talk about sitting in power, sitting, you know, fight, continuing to be part of the fight. You know, I used to think about that as just like an exhausting, we have to like be going hardcore at all times. But I started to think about that more as just kind of making peace with the idea that there's a lot of things that have happened to me or more like much more traumatic things that have happened to people that I love and care about that we don't we never like return to the glorious, perfect self before the negative experience. And it doesn't mean that we're not thriving even later on in our life, but that those things come with us and they aren't, you know, the old Disney model of I toiled under my evil stepmother and now I have gotten the prince and everything is wonderful. And I have a pretty dress, but really trying to, I think, sit with no, like things can get better you can live a wonderful life. You can thrive, but there will always be things that you carry with you. And so I just, I think that this is such an important component of the work. Um, Okay. Well, so I wanted to pivot a little bit. I was super interested in like, well, let's first actually back up. You say comics and I always pause before I say comics because I'm like ready to be corrected of like, no, it's a graphic novel. So like, why do you use comics? Like when should we be using graphic novel? Like, what's the story here? Unpack this for me. I think you'd find some, some different answers uh, from different uh, people who engage in this medium and who appreciate this medium. But I say comics because I think it's sort of more the original terminology. And graphic novel, a lot of people would say is a sort of fancy, newer version of, you know, the sort of better and fancier. But the work that we're all doing still, we, like, a lot of us still call it comics because that feels it's not putting on airs. I guess that's one of the ways that I think about it. It feels like an umbrella term that's not putting on airs. I think it's interesting to consider that the term comic or comic book often brings up the idea of humor for people. Um, And I think graphic novel does help us move away from that misunderstanding, but I'd rather we just try to understand comics in a broader way. Um, Some people call it sequential art. I think that works pretty well. It doesn't always have to have words. Some say that it's you know a combination of word and image on the page. It doesn't always have to have word though. Uh, so I think graphic novel can be a fancier term. I think part of the reason to not call this a graphic novel is that it is an anthology of short pieces. Um, so that makes it a sort of a comics anthology rather than a graphic novel. 
Two, the idea of graphic is hard with stories about homelessness. They're, we're not seeking to be graphic in the sense of um, gruesome or violent or sort of explicit. So I think I wanted to avoid that kind of misunderstanding. Um, we're avoiding that form of graphic while also being the other form of graphic visual. Uh, so I think they both work. I think that graphic novel is a sort of um, publisher's term uh, that is used to to move us into a new era of comics, but comics feels very sort of natural to me. I mean, same here, but I'm, I, again, like, I think the, the, even framing it as like putting on airs, that's why I'm like, I'm prepared to be scolded. I like literally think about it every time. I'm like, no, Casey believes that they can be called comics. <laughs> You will not be. For most people, I do not believe you will be scolded for that. I mean, I just live in this terror because I have been scolded before, obviously. Um, I was also just really uh, interested in, again, like I think going back to even these notions of what is resilience or the idea that you're working in a hard topic area. I think when we're doing this hard work, we also find spaces for joy and laughter and connection. And I'm wondering what some of your favorite moments were from either the stories as they ended up being told, the research process, or in sharing comics in the community? Some of the things that come up for me are in the actual interview process. So it's worth, I think, reiterating that we did 30 hours of interviews. All three of us were present at nearly all interview. That was, they were all via Zoom. So my two research assistants and myself, all of those hours were with the participants by Zoom. And we had so many moments when we got off the phone or the, you know, the participant left the room and I love that person. They're amazing. Like I want to be friends with them. How incredible. And it really, you know, broke down my, the students led the way in that. And it really broke down my training. That is very, you know, I'm I'm a feminist critical geographer. And that to me means that I understand that there's that objectivity is not a thing in research. Uh, but that is still what a lot of people believe. And I still wait, wait, back up, back up. You okay, just okay, broke okay. everyone's souls. <laughs> Can you do like the 30 second version of why objectivity is not a thing? That object- objectivity is would suggest that we could step completely away from our own baggage and our own positionality or who we are, the different parts that identify us, their experience to look at an, look at a story or look at a research or data from some, as feminist scholars say, from as the view from nowhere, um, as if we don't have any of those positions in us. And I think what I like to think of is that objectivity in that sense is actually just white supremacy. It's a form of a sort of a norm or a neutral perspective that often has been held by a white straight cis man through research history. So for me, objectivity is is not a thing. It's not neutral. Um, we can't be neutral or value-free in doing research. We bring baggage. We bring our identities. We bring our lived experience. I don't know if that helps. What do you think? No, it totally helps. It totally helps. I just think that again, like, you know, this is like the spiral and the way if research isn't objective, what is it? And this is getting into what I was kind of thinking about. So you you were saying that the undergrads were kind of leading the way and breaking down this last conception of, of, I, I would say like having to stay a little more detached. Yeah. Yeah, they were showing me what it looks like to be, and I think just to follow through that idea of objectivity, that objectivity does not equal accuracy. And so I think the part of the point in doing the research, we seek accuracy. We seek to respect and really listen to the data and hear people and um, follow a, a process that is um, the same for each person, for example. But we are also going to have moments where we are present. And I think in talking to undergraduate students with an undergraduate research team, and also to graduate students, we had to do it differently. And they taught me how to do 
accurate, respectful, ethical research while also being really present and being trauma-informed, being able to recognize that we have connections, even as we're trying to learn from this particular person. So we created an incredible relationship with each person because they showed me how to not be detached. And while giving space for that person to be fully present and to answer our questions and to ask questions of us, they taught me that. And I think that's like, it's, I'm sort of calling out to, to faculty here and beyond uh, at PSU and beyond to, to really respect and think about what undergraduate students have to offer to a research scenario. So I learned a lot about how to do research well on these topics from the two people that I hired to support me. So some moments of joy and humor, we would get off the phone, you know, sort of gush over people. (laughs) We did that with artists too. And it was just a really like the sort of therapeutic moment to be like, and did you remember what they said about this? And oh my gosh, she's so funny. She's so wonderful. Like what an incredible person. And then we got down to business of remembering and writing and doing our research notes and, and thinking about how, what questions we would ask the next time we talked to them. There's a a couple of moments of humor in the comics themselves, which are sort of moments of joy for me. Um, I talked about how the comics aren't, like comics don't have to be funny. And in fact, the comics on homelessness and housing and stability that we created are mostly not funny. There are some moments of humor and those come directly from the, the perspective and the sort of vibe of the participant and the artist's ability to translate that humor. There's one story in which a student talks about having to leave immediately leave housing that was unsafe and rolling a mattress into a taco to fit it into a tiny car and, you know, getting the hell out of there. And it's a great humorous moment that she feels like really represents, it represents who she is and it represents that moment and how not every second of lives led with instability and insecurity is devastating and sad that like we all have our ways of surviving and there's humor in, and there's some joy even as there is, you know, a challenge and unfair obstacles and trauma. You were highlighting a number of the things that are, I think, integral to the mission and the goals of PSU, right? Working with our undergraduate students, bringing them and their experiences forward, but also really, I think, saying that our students always have something to teach us. And so I just think it's such a wonderful example of what it means to really live PSU's values. One of the things that I knew you were doing in your project, but when I actually went through the comics and when I went through the website and looked at everyone who was involved, it was clear to me that you had taken racial equity into your soul and brought that in. And I'm going to tell everyone Casey is white. And so she is a white lady who I actually am like, oh my God, she like really did the thing. So can you talk to me about why that was important to you and how you kind of approach that? Well, I think it's worth reminding everyone that a track requires it of us. And that's not why I did it, is me doing, living the values of the Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative too. It's required of us as members to take racial equity as a center point to our work. Uh, and that made sense to me. It was part of the reason why I wanted to be a member of a track and to do research through a track. I had this focus in some way for multiple different reasons, but I think a key reason is that we know from the research that ATRAC and others have done that communities, individuals from communities such as LGBTQAI communities and Black, Indigenous, and people of color disproportionately are impacted by homelessness. So it feels really important to represent that if even in a collection of 10 stories, I wanted to forefront those voices of people from those disproportionately impacted communities I wanted to also, at the same time, in in choosing the artists, 
uplift, if at all possible, if that's something that I can be a part of doing, the voices of artists who are from those communities as well. So in some ways, it's sort of twofold and actually at, at each level, at the research team level, at the participant level, at the artist level, we really wanted to, to sort of forefront the voices of people from those communities and that whether that be the art or or the stories themselves, people with lived experience. Part of what I seek to do in trying to create comics that anybody can read, that everybody will read, and that seek to change harmful narratives and disrupt harmful narratives is by changing stories that we're hearing about. And I think that's like, it's disrupting the, the normal language and reporting that we're seeing on homelessness in Portland and around the world, who experiences it, how and why, and whose stories matter. And I think by creating this range of stories that really forefront certain voices, we begin to disrupt the stories that are being told about homelessness, who experiences it, how and why. So those are some of the reasons, but I think just being a scholar who is emphasizing the significance of inequity and white supremacy in how people experience cities and how people experience poverty means that I have, I have to, in my work, prioritize these voices. Well, yeah, and I think it's particularly interesting here in Portland that the, the profile in terms of racial and ethnic population at PSU is, is not actually the same as the city of Portland, right? We've got a lot more representation of students of color. But if you were walking around downtown Portland, the people you are likely to see experiencing homelessness are white, right? And so understanding disproportionate representation uh, in homelessness of people of color does not mean that they are the majority. And so in a lot of ways, you're both lifting up the fact that the, the face of the Portland State student is, is no longer a white student, right, as much as it is a student of color. And then also thinking about the fact that this also disrupts the narrative of the visible white person who's experiencing homelessness. I'm here with Casey McKinney. This is Marisa Zapata, and we are talking about Casey's research project at Portland State University with our undergraduate students to tell their stories and experiences of homelessness through comic books. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I want to give Casey a chance to tell us, you know, what's next, what's going on. I will be shameless in saying that this project is amazing. Um, and it's a project that I personally very much believe in. And so, Casey, yeah, what's going on? Right. You sold out. Let's start with that. That Casey worked with Street Roots. Let's talk about that partnership and then selling out the first printing. So Absolutely. what's going on? Yeah. So the first early on in the project, I think even from the stage of applying to HRAC for funding, I knew that I wanted to partner with Street Roots. And that is in part because I knew that I wanted the mode, uh, my ideal mode of distribution for these comics was through Street Roots vendors. And that has a whole other level of the creation of new relationships and connections. And I if I can, just really briefly, I want to mention how incredible it has been to do this, to distribute. So we, we printed 4,000 copies of this anthology and they sold out within 10 days. And the way that they were sold is through Street Roots vendors around the Portland metropolitan area. And some of the vendors have shared back things like, you know, they're selling like hotcakes, they're selling like fried chicken, which I just can't get enough of. But there's been this huge outpouring of support from community people who don't usually buy Street Roots papers, people who do usually buy Street Roots papers, seeking out vendors all over the city to buy not one, not two, but 10 copies of the comics so that they could share them with people who they believe should read them. So it was incredible, unprecedented response. So we sold 4,000 in 10 days through that means. And then we were able to print 2,000 more 
There may be still some available. If they are, they are, are running down into the, the last few. The next, a couple of next steps for me, one is uh, to try to publish the comics as uh, a trade publication. So adding a few more elements to it. I'm in talks with a publisher now, and I'm hoping to, to print those in, a, in a, you know, the next couple of years as a trade publication. So really with distribution around the US, maybe beyond that's really exciting, but I also want to get to work doing another series, another phase of 10 more stories that will take about $40,000. But part of what that involves is you know, supporting 10 more artists, uh, again, through a partnership with Independent Publishing Resource Center, connecting with Street Roots for another 10 stories, uh, finding 10 more participants from among students, and continuing our partnerships uh, with those groups, while also telling you know 10 more stories to keep that that work going. Yeah. So we're looking for some money. If you're out there and you want to support us, we're looking for $40,000 to, to do it all over again. Um, and I'm really excited and energized to do that work. And I'm so appreciative of the ongoing support of ATRAC and our community partners, Street Roots and the IPRC. So um, also like you've had some gallery exhibits. What have those been like? I went yeah. to one of them and I just, I have to say the, the look on the student's Whose whose work was being displayed or who worked on their faces? The I mean, just so much freaking joy, yeah. just so much joy, and just beaming with excitement. They were funny because a couple of them were like, "Oh, we really want to work for a track," and I'm like, "Well, just to be clear, if you worked for a track and you're working for me, I'm not Casey. This wouldn't be as much fun." <laughs> oh, come on, you're fun. No, not not like you, Casey, and not when you're working for me. <laughs> The exhibitions, the exhibitions were incredible. We started with the downstairs gallery, which is run by the incredible artist, muralist, musician, Darren Todd. We have very much shared values, the downstairs gallery and myself, in terms of what we're trying to do around the arts and racial equity in the city. Uh, so we partnered early on and we just had a very short public showing at the downstairs gallery in February. And the first night was just for people who were connected to the project. And that is something like 60 people. And people came and they brought partners and they brought friends. And we just had this incredible night of artists, participants, street roots, staff members and vendors, IPRC members and staff, and just sort of this incredible collection of people that have been part of the project so far. And that really represented to me the strength of, of this project as collaborative. Um, we're all really proud of it. The second night and the third night were all uh, open to the public. And we had people coming through, some of my colleagues, but members of the community who had heard about it in our incredible long list of media coverage for the project. Uh, so people had heard about it and they came out. Vendors were selling uh, those, those copies like hotcakes again. I think it's worth mentioning, and I didn't, that the money from those sales stayed with Street Roots vendors. So we have, we're selling them for $4. And Street Roots vendors kept all the proceeds from that. So it's been a really incredible amount of support and economic opportunity for vendors as well. After Downstairs Gallery, we moved to PSU campus at the Native American Student and Community Center, which is an incredible space, a really warm and beautiful um, community uh, space on our campus. And we had an incredible exhibit there too. Over the course of a few weeks, faculty were bringing in uh, their whole classes, faculty were bringing in their families. There was a really incredible flow of people moving through that space. And I just to give an idea of the exhibit, the 10 comics 
were printed onto sort of large boards at large scale. And so you could really kind of get into the stories. And that really, again, rose the visibility of the project. And I know of several faculty at PSU, at uh, PNCA here in Portland, um, the University of Massachusetts, and the University of Portland are all using the comics in their courses to teach about homelessness, to teach about the arts, about nonfiction comics, about uh, poverty, about racial equity. And so there's a really sort of, these are clearly already being used. So not just in seeing the exhibit, but actually also using them in the classroom. And then the final exhibit, which ends at the First Presbyterian Church, downtown Portland, and they have an incredible space. They've been really warm and inviting. And we are looking for the next home for the exhibit. I have my heart set a little bit on the Portland Art Museum. If you're listening, docents and beyond, it would make my heart sing to have this work there. And I think it makes a lot of sense to have it be so visible. The other um, home of my dreams is the Multnomah County Library, Central Library. Uh, Those are my two dream locations. But I'm really wide open to where we send the exhibit next. It deserves, as, as a member of the staff at First Presbyterian said in her initial email to me, that this deserves to be seen by the public. It needs to be seen. And I absolutely agree. I cannot agree more. So if you want to find out more information at the project about the project, we'll post the link, but that link is www.pdx.edu backslash homelessness. The um, comics project is listed first on the front page of the website. You can find out more and hopefully have the opportunity to see this amazing artwork uh, yourself. Thank you, Casey, for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Medisa. It's been a pleasure. 